0: This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My next book, In the Blood, is coming May 17th. That's a date change from May 31st. So it's coming in early, coming in hot, May 17th, available for pre-order now. My guest today is Ryan Holiday. I've been so looking forward to this conversation, and you'll see why once you get into the podcast. But Ryan Holiday is the author of The Daily Stoic, Obstacle is the Way, a host of other books on stoicism, a few on marketing, just an amazing guy. You can follow him on the social channels at Daily Stoic. You can go to his website, ryanholiday.net, and sign up for his daily newsletter. Just an incredible guy. And uh, well, without further ado, let's get after it. Ryan Holiday. I just, uh, Stephen Pressfield introduced us. It's been a couple of years ago. I know, now, man. You've
1: written a couple books.
0: Yeah, it's been a crazy few years, which is why this. I'm gonna do my best not to turn this into a therapy session. All uh, right, I, because- <laughs> I could
1: use one, so uh, I, I wouldn't mind. Oh, I don't know. You've got
0: it. You've got things. Uh, I mean, you've got the the book right here. I mean, <laughs> you've got that. I want to ask you all about that and uh, and everything that you have going on. I mean, all these multiple all right. books. You're doing so many great things for people. I've signed up for the newsletter. My wife has signed up for the newsletter. We get them every morning, and uh, I think you're just doing so much good for uh for the country right now. Well, I appreciate more. that, yeah. man. Oh, absolutely. And if more people would sign up for that daily email and if more people would read your books and read Marcus Aurelius as well and uh,
1: we'd be all better off for it. That's uh, there's no doubt about that. Well, I I I agree at least about the Marcus Aurelius part. I wish more people <laughs> would read him and I wish he was taught in schools. That's it. That's a that's a huge part of it right there because I didn't
0: find him until college, which I think is where you did as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was inter- introduced to him through someone who started to teach me how to think logically. And up until that point, I had never, no one had ever mentioned that to me. It's just been school and you're memorizing it. Of course, I'm really into history because of the military side of the house, but I have to do some math and some other things in there as well. But, uh, but no one had ever taught us how to think. Um, and that is such an important thing to, to learn how to do to make you a, a good human.
1: I think so. I mean I I was just uh I was just reading this article this morning that uh, the the headline was how do we know that reality is not a hallucinate uh, a, a hallucination, right? And uh, it was interesting and I think that's what people think philosophy is about, right? They think philosophy is these like unanswerable questions like uh Like, how do we know that there is such a thing as right or wrong? Or what if we live in a computer simulation? Or do you know what the trolley problem is? No. Like, do you, the trolley problem is this, it's like the most vexing, one of the most vexing ethical questions in philosophy, which is like, there's a track and the track diverges. And if it goes in one direction, it will run over one person. And if it goes over, if it goes in another direction, it will, uh, it, it will run over five people. Now, do you stop it? right? To, or do you direct it to, to run over one verse five, or do you keep your hands clean and just let it do what it's going to do, right? And then does it change if you know one of the people or, you know, the, the yeah. point is it's supposed to be a vexing ethical question to which there's actually not an answer. And what I love about stoicism and the kind of philosophy that I think about is that although there might be a time and a place for those questions, stoicism to me is so much more practical. It's like How do you prevent yourself from losing your temper, right? Like how do you, how do you endure adversity? You know, how, how do you, um, how do you prioritize the right things in life? I guess what I like about stoicism is that it's logical, but not sometimes we can use logic almost to get to a very illogical place where we can't actually do anything with the information. Do you know what I mean?
0: Interesting. Well, I do like that trolley problem because, and if you had some optics with you on that train, you could do a quick little scan and see if uh, some of those people needed to be run over. Uh, yes. a terrible thing to say, but, uh, you know, there are some people in the world that uh, it might be a better place uh, without them. Uh, it unfortunately is true. Yeah. <laughs> so you drop out of college and you apprentice under Robert Green. He's the author of 48 Laws of Power. And I have not read that book, but I have seen it in every airport bookstore that I've walked into over the last twenty years, uh, and I am sure. And it's it's a thick it's a thick book like it's it's not messing around. Uh, but I have not purchased it yet, and I probably should now that I see how much of an influence uh, he was, and it it has been on you. But uh, can you describe what was that uh, what was that process well, just, like of dropping off and
1: meeting him and going to apprentice for him? I think you would love the Forty Eight Laws of Power. I think you'd love his book, The Thirty Three Strategies of War, even more, um, which is sort of his fusing of Sun Tzu and Machiavelli uh, and, and all the sort of great generals and strategists uh, in history. Um, Robert is, I think, maybe the the greatest living nonfiction uh, author, uh, just like the greatest of all time. He sold millions of books, but but his books are really practical. Like his books are popular with world leaders. But they're also one of the most stolen books in the country. Like people who don't read uh, shoplift them from bookstores. They're they're also so popular in the federal prison system that uh, many prisons have banned them uh, because they didn't like the uh, how the prisoners were using them. Uh, th- the point being, I-, I think Robert takes really big ideas and makes them very accessible and practical. So you're so you read one of his books and it's like reading twenty or thirty. Uh, much more difficult books, all compressed down into one. And so growing up, that was the author, like you know, his books hit me really hard and they opened my eyes up to that that was even a thing, that a person could write that way. And so to get the opportunity to, to not just meet him, but to learn how he does what he does, it was just a huge breakthrough in my life and my career. I mean, I'm sure you found this when you sat down to write your first book. Obviously you liked reading, uh, and you you had something you wanted to write. But like how to actually do it, it's just it's so hard. It's a totally different skill set that you really can't like learn in school. And, and so to have to have someone who has been there before you showing you how it works, it was just, you know it was a, it was a transformative experience for me. i'm I'm a big believer in that sort of apprentice model of learning. Um, where you find the person who's doing what you want, and you attach yourself to them, uh, and and you you learn a lot of things by their experiences as opposed to having necessarily to learn them all by your own painful experiences. Yep. No, there's so, there's
0: so much to that. That's why I think it's so valuable when people are leaving. Well, anything it can be anything in life, but my experiences with the military. So leaving and having seen so many people have a tough time with that transition, but being able through so your last year where you're essentially in the military, you're walking around, you're going to dental, you're going to medical, you're standing in line to make appointments, you're getting read out of secret programs, you're turning in gear. So your last year uh, can, can be used probably a little more efficiently if they gave you some time to go apprentice in a couple of different areas, intern in a couple of different areas, just to make sure that maybe you really want to be a lawyer after you saw the one movie or you saw the TV show, and now you're going to devote these three years to law school, and then you're going to be in a firm or whatever it's going to be. Uh, well, before you waste all that time, maybe spend two months there, one month, three months uh, interning or as an apprentice for someone. So you can say, oh, this is this is not for me. This is not what I thought it was going to be. And maybe in the course of doing that three or four times in places that interest you or in fields that interest you, maybe you're going to find that thing, that, that, that you find your passion and uh, be able to, or you already know it, but you just don't know where to direct it. And you'll be able to, to find that spot and go.
1: Well, you know, it's so funny when, when, so I, I was Robert's research assistant for many years, and uh, I also had a career in marketing. I was the director of marketing in a company called American Apparel. And when I decided I was going to transition out of that into writing, I, I went to Robert and I, I said, look, like, I want to be a writer. Uh, I, I want to actually do this. And for for a bunch of reasons, I had about a year left that I had to spend at American Apparel. There's projects to finish, uh, a bunch of stuff going on, and I, I just wasn't ready. And Robert actually compared it. He's like, "Let's say you were you were enlisted and you had a year left in your in your in your contract. He's like, how you spend this year is going to be everything because he's like, look, you can just show up for work every day and not think about the future. Just show up and uh, and, and then when you leave, start being a writer. He's like, or you can say, hey, my education is being subsidized for the next year, right? He's like. You can meet everyone that you can meet. You can do as much research as you can. You can do as much reading as you can. You can develop as many relationships as you as you can. And he said there, he was like, and actually I wrote this down. I have it on a card in my, on my wall in the other room. He said, there's two types of time in life. There's a live time and dead time. And dead time is when you're just waiting around. You're like, oh, the flight's delayed three hours. And so I'm just going to sit here, right? A live time is like, I'm going to read a book or... I'm going to go for a walk, or I'm going to leave the airport and I'm going to catch a cab in the city and see someone and come right back. Or, um, you know, a-, a live time, he says, is when you're actually living and breathing every minute that you're awake and you're putting that time to good use. And I think we've seen this during the pandemic, right? People are like, oh, it's just two weeks. Like, uh, I'll-, I'll wait it out. Well, here we are, like two years later. If you're still waiting for things to go back to normal, that means you've wasted two years of your life that. Large things might have been outside your control. Maybe you couldn't travel in certain ways, or you you couldn't uh, open certain kinds of businesses, or do a bunch of different things. But that doesn't mean that you couldn't have gotten uh, you couldn't have used two years of a lifetime and had a whole bunch to show for this period. So I think about that always: a lifetime, dead time. And I I, uh, I I I think about how what a tragedy it is that people waste time waiting for the next thing instead of doing what they can right now with what's in front of them. I know, it's it's uh,
0: it's so sad to think about all those missed opportunities um, just because people have been conditioned or maybe they're just not aware. And a lot of the reason people aren't aware uh, is because I, I think that we've lost a generation of readers. Um, because mm-hmm. I mean, we're slowly losing them. Maybe, I mean, as things came in like more TV and cable TV and gazillion channels, but then of course, internet, and then of course, Facebook and then Instagram and all these things and all these distractions. Um, I mean, it drives me crazy. I've read for, to my kids in the crib from the day they got home. Every time I was home, not deployed, not on a training trip. Uh, and here's, and this one is great too. I've been reading this one with my, with my little amazing. guy. Yeah, it's awesome. We've, we've read it through. He's read it by himself, by himself. I've read
1: it to him and, uh, it's absolutely fantastic. So I'm so glad you're doing, I wrote that Mm -hmm. in March of 2020, I'd had this idea. I was like, I I always knew I wanted to do a kid's book about stoicism. And then all of a sudden I couldn't travel for speaking. uh, I couldn't, you know, do things in person. And I was like, now is the time, like now I can do that. And, and it was by the way, also the most consecutive nights that I've ever had at home with my kids. And so I got to, you know, I could write a draft. And read it that evening and then write the and then work on it the next day and then read it again that evening. And so that book is something for me. We're talking about a live time, deadtime, the boy who would be king is what I got out of the first three, four months out of the of the pandemic that I wouldn't have had if, if I had my choice for things to be, you know, the way that they were before
0: right? No, it's fantastic. The illustrations are great in here. And, uh, and also it's a, it's a hook because kids that are reading this, uh, they will soon be graduating on to other, other things, following you on Instagram. (laughs) Uh, you know, that's a great way for, for kids, especially kids that are on Instagram, uh, to, to get a little bit more aware of stoicism of you, of, uh, this philosophy of just a, a a way to, to live life to its fullest, rather than just be distracted all the time by these bombardments of information and distract and clicks and everything else. And it just, um, it just pains me. And the, the reading side of the house where, where I was going with that with the kids is that uh, you know they've grown up now and they're not grown up, but they're still in the house, obviously. But, uh, but now they're just distracted by all these other things and those other things don't include books. And I did my best and it was like, ah, it drives me crazy because I was always just naturally drawn to reading. And, and you talk about this as well. Um, my parents made reading as natural as eating. Um, as uh, getting some exercise is uh, everything else that we did throughout the day going to school whatever it was like reading was just a natural thing that we did it wasn't this thing that we had to do or something we had to cram in or it was just as natural as sitting down to dinner um, and That's been, it's been like that my entire life. So now when I was getting out of the military, I took those last year, that last year and a half, but I already had this education from these storytellers who I'd read growing up from Tom Clancy, David Morrell, AJ Quinnell, JC Pollock, Mark Olden, all these guys that I read growing up. So I had this foundation um, on which to build and add my own personal experience. But the reading, if I I talk about it as much as I possibly can, every opportunity, I try to sneak it in there, just how important it is to read. And I know it's important to you as well. Have you read uh, General Mattis's book? No, okay. A call sign chaos, or is that the yes. other? Yes. So I have not read the whole thing, but I flipped through it in something else I wanted to talk to you about, which is the anti-library, which yes. I love the concept of. Uh, and I guess I've been building mine my entire life. So, um, but does he talk about reading in there as well?
1: He does in a couple interesting ways. I mean, so first off, he's saying that, that he feels like the biggest flaw in leadership today is that they don't have enough quiet time for reflection. So they're too busy, right? They're just They they have all this information coming at them all the time. They're operating on social media. They're they're from meeting to meeting that they're not having enough time to sit and reflect and to think. And and I think he says in there that obviously one of the best ways to do that is to read about what you're doing. Not the latest New York Times piece, right? Or the latest, you know, Substack newsletter about it. But like somebody really thoughtful who wrote about this from the 10,000 foot view or wrote about it from from the historical point of view, right? And, and in the book, he says, like like specifically about your previous line of work, he's like, look, people have been fighting in wars for as long as there have been human beings, but they've been writing about these wars for roughly 5,000 years, right? So we have 5,000 years of books about this, this line of work. And he's like, it's unconscionable that you would go put people in harm's way Not having first learned as many of those lessons as possible. And he he has this brilliant line in the book that I think about all the time. And and then I'm going to tell my kids as soon as they're old enough. But he says, Look, if you haven't read a lot about what you do, he says you're functionally illiterate. So it doesn't matter that you can read, it matters whether you've read a lot about this thing. And so I think far too often people go, Oh, I could read, or I have read a little bit. But like, no, if you're going to go do, if you're gonna if you're gonna write novels or you're gonna write about philosophy or you're gonna go start a business in this space or that space, you better go read every book possibly related to that field so you have a broad breadth of knowledge to draw from. You're not just winning it, right? Especially if your family is depending on you or you know the random people next to you are depending on you or if you actually just want to be successful winning it is for amateurs right you got to actually know your stuff
0: exactly and growing up uh my mom was a librarian so we grew up with this love of reading mm. books everywhere and i was studying warfare from a very early age because that's what i was interested in uh sure. and there was nothing else to distract me i mean we had an atari 2600 at some point but you can only play so much atari 2600 for kids that grew up in the 80s you know what i'm what i'm talking about so i spent a lot Did of time find in yourself libraries. drawing
1: on those lessons though I, i've got to imagine that like it it, it would be in moments of stress or difficulty or solving complex problems that something you read when you were nine years old might've come back to you. Exactly.
0: Those things. And it's not something you can cram for. Um, I mean, so people ask me about being coming an author or whatever else. And, you know, I mean, yes, anyone, yeah, you can do it, but, It certainly helps if you've spent a lifetime reading and you can, in my case, can have read these different books at different times in my life where it was was so magical because I'm not looking at them through the lens of the previous 20 years. I'm reading it at age 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, where it's just magic in these pages. Um, But the warfare side of the house, I mean, there was Only so much you could read back then about special operations. And I think I read everything I could find in the early 80s about insurgencies, counterinsurgencies from Vietnam, uh, anything about warfare. I was just reading, but most specifically on terrorism and insurgencies and counterterrorism and this buildup of counterterrorism forces that happened in the late 70s up through the 80s, of course, and continues Today, but those lessons, I still I remember these things that I read in fifth grade. I remember these things I read in sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, high school. Uh, some I've reread, uh, some I haven't. But I still remember those lessons, and they've been a foundation
1: for the rest of my life. Well, they they build on each other, right? So it's like you know, you read a book about the Civil War when you were eleven, and and it now you understood broadly what happened. And then when you were in high school, you read a book about Abraham Lincoln, and that interconnected with what you understood about the Civil War. And then then you were in college and you 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 learned this or that. And then some current event happens, then there, uh, you know, a new work of scholarship comes out. And it, it's all building. So uh, one of the things I think people also forget is that they go, Oh, I'm a slow reader, right? Um, they, they want to know how to read faster. Well, first off, I think speed reading is a scam. So there, uh, there's no shortcuts to reading uh, very, very quickly. But if you want to read faster, the only way to do it is to have already read lots of books about that topic, Mm. right? So let's say I've read 20, 30 books about the Civil War. If I read some new book about the Civil War, I'm not like pouring over every page trying to remember. I'm able to go at a faster clip because I've seen this movie before, right? So I'm still, I'm reading, but I'm really only reading and looking for new things that I don't know. And so the more you read, the faster you get at reading Up to a point. So I think a lot of people, um, the reason reading feels slow and arduous to them is is for the same reason that that lifting a light weight is also heavy to them, because they haven't done enough reps of that. But as you, as you get stronger, as you get more informed, your your pace quickens and, and your capacity gets greater. That's exactly right. You're not, uh, seeing something and wondering what's the
0: context? Cause sometimes authors throw in, they expect you to know something already and, they, yes. and something is in there that is that in context to that, the greater whole, the picture of what he's trying to paint or she's trying to paint in that, uh, in the work. But if you don't have that context and you're not exactly sure where this fit in there, or why this happened, well, then you're, you're at a little bit of a, a little bit of a loss and you're not going to get as much out of that read as you would have otherwise. So yeah, that's how about reading. And you love reading so much that you opened a bookstore of
1: your own and during COVID, right? Is that how that happened? So I started uh, the process of of buying this building that I was going to turn into a bookstore in the end of 2019. And I made like the first leap towards doing it in January and February of of 2020. And then, uh, you know, it felt like a huge mistake for about uh, 12 months. As we just sort of sat there, we didn't feel good about opening. It wasn't possible to open for a while. And, you know, there was, there were some moments where it was like, are people ever going to go in bookstores again? Right. Uh, And so, so it was, it was a, a definitely a difficult experience, but it, but it also, you know, again, to go to the idea of a lifetime or dead time it said, okay, well now we have an extra year to do this. So uh, if we're not going to give up, it means we're going to do it better. Right. Because now we have more time. And so, you know, it, we we just really thought about every, every part of the process, uh, you know really, really got some clarity about why we were doing it, what we wanted to accomplish, what it meant to us, you know, what our goals were. Um and then yeah, here we are about a, a year or so into business. And I just spent all weekend um with a friend. I um uh I chopped down a, a big tree on my ranch and we we disassembled it and we moved it inside the bookstore. So now it looks like there's a a 20 foot tree growing out of the floor of the of the bookstore out into the ceiling. So it's been it's been a really cool rewarding experience. I just think, you know, I think bookstores I I think not only is reading very important, but bookstores specifically I think have played a huge role in my life. I don't know about you, mm-hmm. but I just remember just going into bookstores as a kid and some of my favorite things in the world now are just things I randomly stumbled across. I remember the first Louis L'Amour book that I bought as a kid, and I was just like, "Whoa, this is this isn't like the boring books my parents are <laughs> making me read. This is like um, this is awesome." And yeah. and you know, I still love westerns to this day, and and that's because of a chance experience in a bookstore. Yep. No, exactly. I have so
0: many great memories of going into bookstores with my mom. Anytime we travel, we'd go to the local local bookstore, or local library. Uh, so I have so many great memories of that as a kid. So I'm just so connected uh, to these bookstores. And uh, when COVID, when you were doing that at the beginning of COVID, of course, my third novel, Savage Sun, is coming out, and bookstores everybody's kind of scrambling. You know, this, yeah. this is uh, March, April, May timeframe of 2020. And uh, so I wanted to help those those bookstores that had no foot traffic um, and figure out how we're going to do that. So I came up with this uh, with book plates you could. Only get from certain independent bookstores and send them out sure. there. Get them online and, and try to push as many people as I possibly could to those bookstores because it means uh, so much to me and still still does to this day. So I, I can't wait to visit
1: yours because I'm so excited that you uh, that you started one. It's a, it's amazing. Well, did you know Stoicism was actually founded in a bookstore? No. So so Zeno is the founder of Stoicism. He's a merchant. It basically comes from this long line of merchants. And he's leading a convoy of ships in the Mediterranean. He, he's a dealer in what they call Tyrian purple, which is a purple dye that would make the cloak of the emperor. Uh, on, only the richest, uh, most powerful people in, in Greece and Rome could, could wear purple. And so uh, he's leading this convoy of, of ships and he suffers a shipwreck and he loses everything. And this is before venture capital, you know, before insurance. And he washes up in Athens with, without a penny to his name. And as he's wandering around the streets, he he walks in. To a bookstore and uh, the book the bookseller is reading uh, Socrates, like a, a, a doing a reading. just like you and I do book signings today, two thousand year 2500 years ago they were doing books uh, you know book readings in bookstores and, and he and he listens to to, to the man reading uh, Socrates. And all of a sudden this this bit of advice that he'd gotten as a young man came came back to him. Uh, he'd been told, that uh, he would become wise when he began having conversations with the dead. And he didn't know what that meant. But then hearing the the works of Socrates being read in this bookstore and Socrates was dead, he realized that books were how we have conversations with the dead, right? You can have a conversation with Ulysses S. Grant or, or General Sherman or Dwight Eisenhower because they wrote books, right? Like that's how we have conversation. You can talk to Alexander the Great because people wrote books about Alexander the Great. And so he realizes in that bookstore that books reading that philosophy is an ongoing conversation with the wisest people who ever lived. And that's what sets him on the journey to become a philosopher. And he would later joke, he said, "Um, I made a great fortune when I suffered a shipwreck. Because even though he lost everything, it changed the whole direction of his life and then uh, Western civilization as a result of, of, of his discoveries. Oh Man, I love that. that that's so fantastic.
0: Um, and going back to Mattis for a second, though, I was just thinking yeah. that, um, you know, obviously he has that reputation of being the, the warrior scholar, the warrior monk, and, and reading. He's, he's talked about that probably for his entire career. I only knew him, I uh, didn't know him, but I met him a couple of times, but only uh, later on when he had the stars on his shoulders. Um, but he's a huge proponent, obviously, of reading. But uh, I can't help but go back to, and I try not to dwell on it too much, but um, if we had only spent more time in the pages of a few books uh, at 2001 timeframe, things might have turned out a lot differently over this last 20 years. And then to your point of getting too busy and not having enough time to think, um, the people that do take that time off in the military, maybe they go to war college or postgraduate school or something like that, and then they come back. I mean, this train's already rolling. This huge bureaucracy is, is already moving and there's so many other other factors at play. But at the very beginning, if we'd spend a little time in Peter Hopkirk's The Great Game um, and just read about the British experience in the 1800s and early 1900s, there were some clues there. Um, there there's some writings about the the Soviet experience in Afghanistan, which was not that long ago when you were talking about 2001. Uh, we had 10 years of the Soviet experience there to study. We didn't have to go back to Alexander the Great. We didn't know, have to go back to these guys like that. We could have looked at more recent history and made some more educated decisions. And that's what our senior leadership, the military or our elected representatives, or even, even non-elected bureaucrats, uh, that's what they owe is understanding the nature of the conflict in which, of which we're about to engage and which we're about to, uh, commit us forces. But how are you going to do that? If you're not reading, if you don't have that foundation,
1: you know, what's incredible. Uh, I was just reading this book about, uh, Queen Elizabeth II, uh, and uh, it, your point about recent history, right? We think a lot of these things were a really long time ago. And then we tell ourselves, oh, it's different now, mm. right? And when you study history, you realize that people have always thought that. And they're almost always embarrassingly wrong. But anyways, I was reading this biography of her because she's going to be a character in, my, in the book that I'm just finishing now. And um, the, the author just offhandedly mentions that as a very young girl, she met a veteran of the British campaign in Afghanistan wow right so imagine she's probably the only living person to have done that and then her grandson also fights in Afghanistan wow right so we we think that these things never touch each other right that they're so far away and in fact history is usually just a couple lifetimes away from being old i met a guy in austin before he died he was the oldest living veteran before he died his name was richard overton and uh, he was born in 1906, right? He fought in World War II when he was 35, 36, something like that. But to think about—I uh, did the math—and I went back and I looked. The oldest living veteran alive when he was born was in the Black Hawk War, oh, which was geez. like 1830, 1840, wow. like Lincoln fought in the Black Hawk War. Oh my God! And so, so we often think that these things are so distant. And that we live in the modern world and that because we have computers or missiles or, you know, fighter jets, that everything is different and they're not different. They're exactly the same. Right. Like it's the Stoics say that that history is the same thing happening over and over and over again. It's people making the same mistakes driven by the same forces, people failing to learn the same lessons. And then and then we're shocked by it. But, uh, you know, I I saw a meme the other day. uh, where it's like um, the you know we we say his you know uh, history repeats itself. So if you have studied history, that's a terrifying position. Like that's a, a, almost a burden of knowledge that you have to carry around because you know what comes next. If you were familiar with the the the, the great influenza in, in March of 2020, you know you saw where things were going to go, and you knew that this was going to be brutal and awful, and you knew. You know, a lot of the mistakes that people were going to make, and I think your point is a good one, it doesn't have to be that way. It's a tragedy that it is, but if people were more informed, perhaps things would be different. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and I think it
0: doesn't help that we get, we're so comfortable specifically in this country with all those things you just mentioned with the internet being to reach out for things, Uber eats. If I get a little hungry, I hit <laughs> the app. We've become so as and generally, uh, comfortable, uh, and we have not faced it as much adversity as generations past. I think I'm safe in, in saying that, especially when I think about my grandparents, my great grandparents, both who were, uh, alive until not that long ago. Um, but they, they had stories of obviously the great depression. Um, they, like my great grandparents First, remember World War World War One. Um, uh, they had they had ties back to coming across the prairie, like all those things. I mean, you expected. Why did they have so many children? Because you expected to lose a few um, back then, and it's just how life was. It was hard, um, and it's gotten a little bit less so. But I think that uh, the COVID experience of the last couple years, um, what we're seeing in Ukraine, we we're seeing that hey, maybe society is not quite as stable as we. Have been led to believe over this very short period of human history, uh, where yeah. we haven't had to provide the, our, the food for our family by going out and getting it, or defend. It. We've been able to call 911 and didn't have to to stand there on the the, the front at the front door of our cabin to defend it. Um, that's a very small part of human history, uh, and I think if more and more people are realizing that uh, society is not as stable maybe as we thought. More stable, obviously, than the rest of human history, but maybe it'd be a good idea to
1: to be prepared. Going going forward, I sort of see it as a double edged sword. So one, it's like um, first off, history isn't fun, right? Like when when you study history, yeah, it's filled with death and tragedy and loss and stupidity and you know uh, pointless mistakes. And so living through that is not fun, right? It wasn't fun to live through the depression, um, just as it wasn't fun to live through the the nineteen nineteen pandemic. Um, and so here we are. It's naive to think that history is going to be fun. Um, and the last 20 years of American history are almost preposterously filled with, you know, major destabilizing events. But I think the other thing that should come out of that, I, or at least I would hope, I hope we would we could we could take a little bit of confidence out of that. You know, uh, Seneca talks about one of the Stokes, he talks about how he pities the person who has never been through adversity because they don't know what they're capable of. Right. So, like you and I, yeah, we'd hear about our grandparents who fought in World War II or who lived through the depression. We'd go, wow, they were so tough. You know, they got through that. Well, like in 50 years, people will be talking about, you know, this year and last year and the year before it as events like that. Right. And and so for this is, I think, particularly true for people who haven't had the combat experiences that you have had, because obviously you understand that that's sort of a crucible that shapes and informs a person. But now. All of us—we've all been in the same boat the last two years, and it—it and it, it was destabilizing and unprecedented and weird and challenging. And yet, like, we're here, you know. Like, you made it through. Like, you lived through a historical event, and that shouldn't surprise you, because as we were just talking about, you're the descendant of people who fought on the plains, you know, who survived the 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 Irish famine or uh, you know uh, you know went through any number of these things they fled communism or they uh, you know they 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 settled on you know in, in a in a new country you know we're the descendants of those people we're, we come from an unbroken chain of survivors of the worst things that have ever happened in human history by you know literally by definition. We are from an unbroken line of survivors, and that should instill us with at least some confidence. We have what it takes. Often, we don't act with what it takes, but we deep down, we're the biologically exactly the same as those people. We have what it takes.
0: Yeah, No, it's awesome. And I think it's our responsibility now to pass that, uh, to pass that along. Um, because if we didn't have ancestors that were good at doing those certain things, we would not be here. Um, That's right. we would have starved to death or, or maybe they were good at making friends who could, who could fight or could farm or could hunt or whatever. But, uh, sure. regardless, you know, those are the politicians maybe. Um, but, uh, if, if we hadn't done that, they hadn't been good at those things, we would not be here today. But I love that you said that cause I'm going to, I'm going to talk to my kids about that tonight about, Hey, look what you lived through over the last couple years. Um, of course, cause they've had the masks in school. They've had to deal with all this. They've seen, you know, parents, us, other parents, you know, just dealing with these different, different issues. Um, but putting it, framing it that way that you just did, I think would be so healthy for these kids who are just, they're, they're, they're just taking it all in, you know, they're soaking their sponges. You know, we might not think they're taking it all in, uh, as we're discussing something in the kitchen and they're over there in the living room or whatever it might be, but they are taking it all in. And I try to be cognizant of that, but I love how you framed that. I'm going to pass that along tonight.
1: Yeah. Like I heard in 2020, a lot of parents were calling it like a lost year. They're like, this is a lost year because like virtual school mm. and, you know, they couldn't go up, they, they couldn't have graduation or they couldn't do this or that. Did you hear your grandma describe 1933 <laughs> as a lost year? No, you didn't. Right. Like not, not only was it not a lost year, they almost spoke of those experiences fondly, like as transformative, it shaped who they were. So to me, that's really what stoicism is about, is that we have this choice, right? You can you can see it as dead time if you want. Is the last year, it sucks, uh, it's, it's so-and-so's fault, and I've been deprived of something as a result. Or you can be like, here's how we got better as a family over the last year. Here's the books that we read. Here's the road trip that we took, right? Here's here's the, the reevaluation of our priorities that we underwent. You know, I, when I look at the last two years, I don't think of the you know, the fact that I, I didn't get to travel to Europe several times the way I normally would, or that, that you know, what it cost me, I, I go, look, I had the most consecutive nights in a row with my kids. Uh, I, I think of the the road trips that we took. I, I think of the books that I wrote. I think of the books that I read. I think of the fact that, you know, somehow my marriage is better now than it was before, right? I think, and, and that, that didn't just happen. That happened because I said, well, since I can't do this, I'm going to I'm going to I'm gonna, the positive that I'm going to take from it is going to be this instead. And so we we always have that choice. It doesn't feel like it because we're often focused on what we've been deprived of or how unfortunate or unnecessary the situation is. I mean, you know, ideally the the pandemic would have been prevented or ideally the response would have been different. Um but it wasn't. So what are we going to do about it is ultimately the only thing that we have much of a say of. Yeah this is why I love talking to you. This is why I love getting those emails and why
0: everybody should sign up and get those daily emails, uh, and, uh, follow you on Instagram in particular. That's the one that I, that I'm on more, more regularly than anything, anything else, but they're fantastic, especially when you talk about things, things like this, or you frame them, um, through that, that lens of philosophy of Marcus Aurelius of meditations of stoicism. Uh, and you talk about things that are so, so important like this, um, and you make it digestible because if somebody might pick this up, you know, and think, Oh, this is a little hard to get through. What does this really mean? And I have a thousand other things going on. And But the way you break it down, uh, especially in today's day and age when we're you, people are used to getting these things, it's such a great introduction that makes people want to go read this, makes people want to read this one to their kids, makes people want to get this obstacle is the way in the daily stoic right here, which I'm going through now this year. So you can see my little oh, notes thank you. right there. So uh going through that each, each and every day, it's digestible. It's Doable. It's not something that's unachievable, Uh, and I think that's so fantastic that you have uh, that you've done that. Such a service. Well, I, I,
1: I think I'm sure you found this in your training. Is is the learning it once is one thing, but it's really the daily practice that makes it sort of into the muscle memory or part of your second nature. And so I think so often we think of like even reading, but 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 like the big ideas that we shape our lives around. We would go. Oh, I heard about that in high school, or I read that in college, or you know, I heard that in church, or whatever it is. And and that's great. The introduction is obviously essential, but to me, that the daily practice—how how often are you checking back into those things? Mm-hmm. So so even me, like uh, obviously, this has been you know fifteen or so years of study of Stoic philosophy for me. But as I was rereading Marcus Aurelius at the beginning of the pandemic, because the world had changed so much. I got totally different things out of it, right? Mm. So so like I knew vaguely, not vaguely, more than vaguely, I, I understood intellectually that Marcus Aurelius lived during what we now call the Antonine Plague, right? So Marcus Aurelius is the emperor of Rome when when a, a, a terrible pandemic hits Rome, something like five or 10 million people die. It's one of the most devastating uh, plagues in human history. But But in meditations, Marcus Aurelius says that there's actually two types of plagues. He says there's one that takes your life and there's one that destroys your character, right? And which is worse, right? And so I I I've under, I read that many times and, you know, I, you sort of vaguely get what he's saying. Um, and then to live in a plague, like live in the pandemic and go and see people on both sides of the spectrum just become monsters, right? You go, oh, this is <laughs> what he's talking about. He's not talking about how you can breathe in the germs and, and then it can be bad for you. He, that's real. And obviously, you want to avoid that. But he's talking about how because of the stress and the fear and the danger of it, uh, one can become a bad person, wow. which is actually worse than getting COVID or the plate, right? Like, they're, they're, I, I don't know about you, but I've seen a number of people during the pandemic where I've thought, I'd much rather get COVID than whatever they've got, Wow! right? Like, that's terrible. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, because they become some crazy person screaming in a supermarket or they become politically radicalized in some other way, or they believe in conspiracy theories. You know, you realize that, oh, he wasn't just a guy writing about these things intellectually, but this was based on his actual experiences. And it's only by reading and rereading as part of that daily practice that you, you really have the opportunity to to come to understand that.
0: I know that's yeah, that's fantastic. And I, you know, you get different things when you read books at different times in your life. Like uh, oh, Atlas Shrugged holy. or Fountainhead. I read that so long ago. Uh, I've revisited it since many times, um, but I need to read it through again. I mean, that's that's an, another one. Like, that's uh, that's. Well, pretty-
1: how old were you when you read it the first time? I was want to say nineteen twenty somewhere in there. Right, so you didn't know anything. Yeah. You know, you read Atlas Shrugged, and you're like, "Oh yeah, they're picking on us. We're, you know, we're we're the we're the successful, brilliant people. They're picking on us." And then, yeah, you read it in your 20s, and you're like, "I didn't know shit. I was a punk." You know, <laughs> uh, and and I think I think as you as you get older, the, the Stoics say this that we don't step in the same river twice, right? Oh. And and that's that idea that you get when you reread. Like uh, I just reread The Great Gatsby. I could. I wasn't in a position to understand The Great Gatsby, and and actually, I just did this whole thing. I, I reread Fahrenheit Four Fifty One. I wasn't, you know, I at set sixteen. I don't know what they're talking about, but but in the context of that we live in today, it's totally different. And so, yeah, rereading is it. Not enough people read, and then even of the people who read. Not enough of them reread.
0: I know. I need to go back and reread Fahrenheit 451. I read it in sixth grade, so it would have been 11 when I read it. I yeah. read it since a newer, a new edition with a new forward a, a few years ago. Um, but uh, yeah, I have it. It's once again. It's on my. It's on my bookshelf. This one? Yep.
1: Uh, is that the cover of the latest one? Yeah, this one is might the 50th be. year anniversary. Nice. So when was that? And uh, I have my
0: original in a box somewhere and I yeah. need to dig it out. Um, I've done so many moves. That's the, there's a couple books that I have not found, but I've been growing this library. Um, oh, Chesty, I have that one right there in your background. I got The Last Lion in mine. Yep. I have most of your books, I think, in my in my library or anti-library, Good. which I wanted to yes. ask you about. So the, the idea of the anti-library is fantastic sure. because people come in and see my bookshelves they have since I was a little kid. And they're like, hey, have you read all these? And uh, I have not read all of them, <laughs> but I can go and I can grab and pull something out for reference. Um, sure. I don't have to go online, which is getting even uh, more important, I think, uh, as different maybe entities want to control what you think or or do and sure. have the power to do so. Um, but to have your own library. And what I've done recently is I've started looking I know if I should say this or not, because, you know, well, I will, um, is getting uh, encyclopedias from different, from each decade. And just starting, yeah. and seeing how things have changed uh, over Ooh, time. So you have these old ones from like the 1920s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. How is World War II? How is World War One talked about in the 20s and the 30s? How is it then in the 60s? What's changed since then? Uh, so you can kind of have this history, but this morphing history that's written down. Um, so you can take the time to go back in those pages and be like, oh, this one from 1935. Look how it describes this interesting. And then look how that's morphed over time. Or it's, maybe it's not even in something uh, that's a little later down the line. So um, yeah, so that's my one of my newer newer things now that we've moved into a new place and have some room for books.
1: Well, there's a, cert, there's a certain amount of financial privilege in what I'm about to say, but I think it's really important. I've always had the, the attitude of like, if a book looks interesting to me, I buy it. Yep. I don't think, am I going to read it? What am I going to read next? I'm like, if I see it and I want it, I buy exactly. it. Because- I've had the experience of books changing my life so many times that I have no uh, compunction about taking a $10 or $20 or $200 risk on a book, right? Like if, if this one doesn't work out, the next one will work out. If if 20 in a row don't work out, it doesn't matter because I'm I'm so playing with house money as far as reading goes at this point. Uh, that 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 no amount of bad books in a row could ever determine. Mm. So when people see a library, they often assume that that is the cumulative total of all the books that person has read, when really it should be, an, you said your mom is a librarian. Your mom didn't read every book in the library. No, this was a collection of all different books of all different topics that people may or may not be interested in in any given time. And so Building a personal library is really important, not just for you, but as you said, when you have kids, it's like these are the books that our family owns, and pick anyone off the shelf anytime you want, and let's read it and talk about it. And and it's also important, I think, that people don't be so precious with their books, right? When I read, I'm writing in the pages, I'm folding them up. I don't care if I spill food on them. <laughs> you know, like when somebody brings me one of my books to sign. And it's like pristine. I'm like, you didn't read this, <laughs> you know. You say you like it, but you didn't like it enough. Like, but when somebody shows me and it's full of tabs and there's folded pages and the spine is broken, I'm like, this person got inside here mm-hmm. and you know made themselves at home. And so, yeah, for me, uh, when I see a book I want, I buy it. Uh, if I don't like a book, I stop reading it. And, uh, if, if I just feel like skimming a book, I'll skim a book, but I'm, I try to always be reading and I'm always looking for things that can help me in my actual life.
0: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It helps me so much to have, I have this, this library of fiction, nonfiction it's organized in a strange, I have different like wars and periods here and there. And, you know, it's, it's, it's my own, uh, system as far as organization goes. Um, but I go to that. All the time. I'm in there uh much more than I am looking at something, looking up something on, on Google. I just go to that I'm going to that library because I know that's in there and there it is, boom, off it comes. And then I flip it and I just I know pretty much where something is if I'm gonna look it up, especially if it's we're dealing with warfare insurgencies and counterinsurgencies and terrorism. I'm like, yep, there it is right there. And I can fact check something and put it in the book or whatever it, whatever it might be. So uh so I love my my library. It's gonna be yeah, it's just a part of me, just like uh, just, just my collection of weapons or anything else. It's, uh, it's just a part of, of who I am. And I, I love that you promote reading. I think it's, like I said, I think it's the most, one of the most important things that we can promote as uh, as parents and as adults and uh,
1: whatever our sphere of influence may be. Well, what I try to remind people also is like, whatever it is that you're doing, chances are somebody has done it and written a book about it. And someone may have also written like a book about all the, ba- all the ways they failed at that thing. Right. Or there might be a thousand books about, you know, so so it's realizing, like when I talk to professional athletes, it's like every great, the greatest athlete of every sport has written a memoir in every generation for 150 years. Right. That you to, to not avail yourself of that knowledge is ridiculous. Right. Like, why would you start? Why would you not start where they left off? Right. Like so. So you have to make yourself a student of whatever it is that you do and uh, And reading this, you know, reading is the best way to do that. Of course, documentaries are great, podcasts are great, articles are great, social media is great. But I think you can attest to this. The amount of time that goes into a book, just concentrated thinking and focus and craftsmanship, there's no other medium that is as distilled down as a book. And so to 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 just be like, eh, I'll figure it out on my own. It's just so dumb,
0: yeah, I mean, this last one, I had to go and rent Airbnbs around Park City here in Utah. And I could see our house, so I'd flip the lights on and off for the kids and look at what the binos. and you know, just cause that 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 focus that it that it takes and mm-hmm. the interruptions are just uh, you know they, they what kill you. But uh, I do want to ask you a couple of things. I want to be cognizant of your time, yeah. but here's the therapy. Session part. Okay. Um, so, for most of my life, uh, I was uh, very much an introvert. I think I am very much an introvert still. I love just being. If I could just be in the pages of a book, and if I could just write the the books in a cabin up here and send them to New York and have them published and start the sure. next one. That Would be wonderful, but I missed that boat by about 30 years. Being able maybe, no, I'm not quite 30, about 20, uh, I'll say 25. Um, where you could rely on your publisher and publicist to do things for you, sure. and you know, they'll continue to do have that model for the for Stephen King and uh, John Grisham and the people that who had built up the this readership during the 70s, 80s, 90s. Um, but if you're stepping into it today and want to make your living doing this, and I love it, I love the writing part. But guess what in 2022 you have to do these other things unless you're the one-off unless you're that uh, the we're one-off. doing right exactly now. you have to do do this but these are great I mean I love doing this sure because uh, it's just me me and you and uh and I love doing that I mean people listen but it feels like it's they're the third person in the conversation um so I love that but but doing the being more public, uh, especially from my time in the military. I never had a Facebook account, never had any public profile whatsoever. I learned to be more of an extrovert just in a leadership type role, but still uh, try to be thoughtful in all that I do. Uh, and then when you write something like you do, that's obviously intensely personal that you're so passionate about. And when I write, even though it's fiction, there is so much of me in there because of that sure. lifetime of study of warfare, the experience downrange, uh, just wanting to do this my entire life, knowing that after the military, I was going to write the, uh, fiction in this genre. So that makes it when, when someone reaches out and uh, I use social media to say thank you to people, I'd love to be able to yeah. say thank you. Cause I'm sincerely grateful to everybody who took a risk on me as a new author and then told a friend about it. Um, but then you get the people who come in and just want to stir the pot or just be so mean or whatever it might be hurt, intentionally hurtful. And it, 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 so I've got this from you about don't you can't, there's th- certain things you can't control. So why let it, Influence your life in a negative way. And even though I know that sort of a thing and I've read about it, I I still gets me and it still will keep me up. And I'll be like, ah, oh, so um, uh, so you talk a little bit about that, especially in today's yeah. world, um, as kids in particular, like I'm tough enough to deal with it, even though I don't like it, uh, and would never make a comment, a negative comment on someone else's you know, whatever they're doing. Um, but, uh, but people do, and it's become acceptable to complain and to, um, and to just be nasty, uh, from behind the keyboard, saying things to people you'd never say if you were locked in an elevator with them, especially if they're larger than you. Um, yeah. So we're at this weird, strange time. So, uh, I was going to wanted to pick your brain on that. Like, how can I get better at that and not letting those things affect me, whether it's a comment or a negative review, or when someone writes something that's just untrue or they take something that i've written and it's not at all what i meant or something like that like how do you deal with that in today's world
1: you know it's funny i was i was just watching aziz ansari's new comedy special on netflix and he he was talking to the musician frank ocean and he was like you know like i'm so jealous like he's like all these other people are out doing like you know they're not just making music they're doing this and this and this and he's like you just make music like how do you get away with that and he's like oh it's easy man you just got to be comfortable making less money Uh, and, and I, and I, I like that because what he's basically saying is you got to remind yourself that you chose to do this, right? Like you could, if like you said, you missed the boat, you didn't really miss the boat. You just chose to get on the boat that's here now, Mm -hmm. right? Like you could live the solitary, I just send in the manuscripts. I don't care how the books do. You could choose to lose, to live that way. It would just cost you a lot. Yeah. Right. Um so remembering that hey I chose this right like this was my decision and so I'm going to own it um is one thing I try to remind myself but the other thing and and, and you're right because it's it's a it's a perpetual reality of any profession in the public which is that you are judged and criticized and get unsolicited feedback from the crowd or the mob or the random internet troll and you have to you have I think you have to set up Means by which, uh, f- first off, just some protective barriers, right? Uh, Hemingway told Fitzgerald like, if you read the positive reviews, then you have to read the negative reviews, right? I think what he was saying is, don't read the reviews, <laughs> right? Like you have to create some barriers. So, like for instance, like when I started Daily Stoic, it was an email, and it would go out every day, but I could read the response. People could reply, and I could get them. And when it was a couple hundred people, that was okay. When it was 10,000 people it was okay but now that it's like almost a half a million people that's a lot of crazy people right <laughs> like even if even if just 1% of the list is like uh the worst people in the world that's a lot of those people mm-hmm. and they can't have direct access to my brain mm-hmm. i have a i have a quote on my wall from johnny cash's manager and he said you need to build a mausoleum in your head with big iron doors that so, so that nobody can get in there except you. He said you have to decide for yourself what you want to do with your music and not let anyone else tell you. And so I, I think you do have to create a little bit of a bubble because, like, if you, you wouldn't be successful if you didn't have good judgment, good taste, good, you know, good instincts. So the more public you are, the more other people can get in there and mess with that compass. Mm. Right. And you have to be able to protect that space, or it's not just for your personal happiness. You actually have to think about it from an artistic standpoint. Like if you're out, this is why like musicians won't listen to the radio. It's they don't want to hear what other people are doing, Mm. let alone what critics are saying. They just, they want to keep their own influential, their own influences pure and not get corrupted by the moment or the mood or the trend or the backlash or whatever. So I try to keep a little bit of a bubble. And then I also remind myself, as you said, if I, and and Mark's realist talks about this in meditations, if you knew what that person who's criticizing you, if you knew what they did, right, if you knew what they thought about other things, um, I found myself on this recently, like I was looking at the comment section of, uh, of something that I knew a lot about. And uh, I saw how wrong all the commenters were. And then like another article came out a couple of days later and and I didn't know anything about it. So then I was reading the comments. I was like, wait, if these people were way off base over here, right. chances are they have no idea what they're talking about over here. So you, you just got to, I think you want to be really practical about like whose opinion you take seriously. So like you, you got to cultivate, you got to tune everything else, else out and then you've got to cultivate like a group of people. So like, uh, we both know Stephen Pressfield. If Stephen, if I sent one of my books to Stephen Pressfield and he was like, Ryan, ugh, mm. you know, that would hit me very hard because I know I trust him and I know his taste. But if some random person on the internet gives me a negative Amazon review, I got to know, like, there's a reason I have this job and they don't.
0: Right. God, it's so interesting. I think I've been so open from the beginning because I looked at, you know, I looked at how, uh, like black raffle coffee built something with, with these modern platforms you couldn't have used 30 yeah. years ago. I looked at how Apple sends, why is the experience of getting my iPhone so different than getting my sure. Blackberry back in the day? Do I send out books in a very cool package that allows other people to, to share that experience yeah. with, with their audience? How does Red Bull launch a drink? Um, why is publishing not doing these sorts of things? So I was like, I was doing all this, but I was sharing sure. that journey and I was thanking everyone. And I still try to late at night. I'm still hitting that heart button and I'm still saying, thank you. Thank you so much. Sincerely appreciate it because I do, I sincerely appreciate it. But, uh, when I was talking to Rogan about it, he got to a certain point point. he's like, yeah, it, I, he's 9 million followers on Instagram. I can't look at every comment. So I just don't. Yeah. Um, and, and he, but he's like, I hope people know that I'm still very appreciative of, uh, of, of the support or where I am and all that sort of a thing. But it, at some point it just becomes too much
1: to physically do as a, a single person. Yeah look, you, you got to wear your body armor. You know what I mean? Uh, or you're going to, you're going to take a, like you know, you're going to get wounded. It. You put right? it in you terms that I understand now. I like it. Yeah. So so I, I just, it's like to be an artist, you have to be vulnerable. You have to to really care about these things and, and you you have to have gratitude. You have to really respect the audience and all of that. And so that's actually the reason why you have to put up some of those barriers, right? Like if you just didn't give a shit, then, then it you you wouldn't be who you are right it's that you care is actually why you have to put up it, it also like as a leader right like you have to deeply care about and be involved in all the people who uh, you, you know you're in charge of but if you get too close to them you won't be able to effectively do that job right like if you get involved in every bit of their personal lives uh, if, if they're if they're if they're involved in your personal life now all of a sudden, you don't have the boundaries mm-hmm. that you need to be able to do your really tough job. So uh, I, I just it, you, you have to be accessible. You have to be authentic. You have to be real and vulnerable. You can't make good art. But if anyone can get at you at any time, you're going to get paralyzed. And they're going to they're screw with your compass. And you're not going to be able to do that thing. So it's, it's ultimately both selfish and selfless. Because if you want to keep making stuff that these people like, you have to be in a headspace that's conducive to that, and if 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 it's making you miserable, you're not in that headspace.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I've never read a comment on uh, on YouTube. Maybe in the very beginning, I read like a couple, but there was not
1: those are the worst ones Yeah, so i don't yeah. go there
0: anymore at all uh, yeah. no i never look there uh i do on i do on instagram um but uh but i think it's time to it's it's time to take a breath this is my year to get organized and uh and maybe put up a couple of those barriers change my phone number that's a, i've been i've had another phone for like the last Ooh. 2 years and uh, i have not committed to it yet but it's coming i like there's no other way there's no other way to even respond to people that you know all, all of them because there's just that's all i would do uh which is a great problem to have i feel so Fortunate yes. and so thankful. Um, but I was curious what you what you thought about that. And then it's interesting, all this stuff that I've been learning from you by following you and reading your your books actually made it into my next novel that's coming out in May what? in the blood. So I have a, oh, I can't a, wait. a father-son conversation and it's the the father passing along some lessons to his son. And it was just naturally, it wasn't like in my outline or anything. Um, but I just got to this scene where I had the main character going to Arlington and then looking across at the mall and remembering this time where his dad took him to the Vietnam Memorial uh and used that as an opportunity to to have a conversation and right in there, I have some, uh, some of the things that uh, I got from you about things you can control and some things you can't control. And, and, uh, so, but it just naturally came in, it was, just, and it, but it wouldn't have been there. Had I not been reading your books, had I not been thinking about the things that you're, uh, you're sharing with people online to make us all, all better and, uh, hopefully share with our kids to, to make them better citizens as well. So, um, so it's, it's powerful what you're doing is what I, what I was, what I I'm so honored.
1: Oh man, that that's, that's amazing. I, I love, I love hearing that. Yeah, my my instagram in. my instagram trick is that i have it on my wife's phone oh nice so like i so i have to be hey can i borrow your phone for a minute like and then she's like give me my phone back you know so i can't get too sucked in uh and i can't like uh if i'm supposed to be playing with my kids i can't be like you know lost in this thing because it's there mm-hmm. but there's like a there's just you know it's like putting the cookies on the top shelf or something yep like a little bit harder, like I leave. Now yeah. I
0: have a separate, I, have, well, I always had a separate computer Um, and yeah. one one for the business side, and then one for writing, only writing. It wouldn't even be connected to the That's internet. A good idea. It didn't have to update yeah. Word. Um, But yeah. uh, those are two separate things. And then I put them in different areas also. That's a great idea. Like the child has to walk across his New York apartment, which I guess is very spacious. I'm Uh, sure it's a nice apartment. (laughs) It's probably
1: bigger than my house. Uh,
0: It may, it may be. Um, but I did that, a similar thing by putting them in different rooms, just having that separation. And I leave my phone up here. But the other side of that is when I get back to it, it's like, you know, there's like, oh my (laughs) gosh, now I'm going to be up all night just responding to people so they don't think I've changed. And it's like, ah, it's doing the best I can. Um, and one thing else, one other thing you talk about is, um, uh, how it's, it's not what happens, but how we respond
1: to what sure. happens. Um, and, and I love how you how you frame that. To me, that's the essence of Stoic philosophy, right? At the core, it's that uh, Epictetus, who's a slave, right? Epictetus, who ends up inspiring James Stockdale and the Hanoi Hilton. Mm-hmm. Epictetus is is born a slave. He spends thirty years of his life in 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 slavery, and so he has to figure this out, like in the ultimate hard way, that there's some things in life that are up to us and some things that are not up to us. And distinguishing between these two things is, he says, the first act of the philosopher. Do I have control over this or not? And being willing to accept those things. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't get involved. We don't try to make a difference, etc. We do. We just don't emote out to the world that we're, you know, we focus on, well, what can I do about this? If you don't like where we are politically, instead of just Watching MSNBC or Fox News all day, go run for city council, right? Like, go try, or, 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 how about here's an easier one. How about you just try voting? Mm -hmm. Because the number of people that complain about where we are and then don't vote is enormous, right? So the point is, what do I control in this situation? What's the, what are the little things that I can do? How am I going to move forward? That's what we focus on. And to me, that's really also, again, what a lifetime bedtime is about. I, it's not, I didn't choose to be in this traffic jam. I didn't choose for this, you know, for the power to go out, but now I'm sitting here, what am I going to do with the two hours that I now, you know, have in front of me? Right, right. And interesting, you brought up voting
0: um, because you oftentimes you hear those. And I think, isn't Eisenhower one of the most famous people that said it, that his first vote was when he actually ran for president or something like that. There's something like that. Yeah. But a lot of these senior military leaders, they make a point of saying that they haven't voted and they made that decision because they didn't want to be by, Eh. Uh, you know, I don't know, because to me, immediately, it puts me a little bit on edge thinking, well, did they not appreciate all those people in their same profession who died or came home missing arms and legs or mentally traumatized from the inception of this country up until today to give them that right? Did they think that it was Or is it just a little bit of laziness in there? And now it's convenient not to just say that I didn't want to be, uh, political because I wanted to just serve my country. I don't know. I think if you're a student of history and you take the time to understand and conceptualize what these people sacrificed for you to be able to give, to go into that booth and vote that you should probably do that to honor that sacrifice.
1: Well, and look, we do this in the country. We 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 go like you know, it's it's Biden and Trump, and we go these can't possibly be the two best <laughs> candidates, right? Which is true. But you know, we also have a thing called primaries in America, where we get to choose the candidates. We just had a primary in Texas. Less than ten percent of the people in Central Texas voted in the primary, wow. right? So not even like fifty percent, which is like good turnout in a national election. Ten percent of people decided, hey, here's who here are the de- here's the Democratic candidate we want. And here's the Republican candidate. One out of 10 people bothered to show up. It took two minutes to vote. You know, 10 percent of people did it. And then we wonder why we get these garbage candidates. So, again, uh, also the idea, you know, focus on what you can control. People go, my vote doesn't you know, make a difference. The presidential election was decided by like 40,000 votes in, in some. It, it, actually, and a friend of mine here in, in this little town I live in, she ran for city council. She lost by two votes, Wow, two votes, Wow, right? Like two people said, my vote doesn't matter and didn't vote. Mm-hmm. That's a different election, Gosh. right? And so, yeah, voting does matter and being involved does matter. And the founding fathers were uh, students of Stoic philosophy. So this idea that the Stoic doesn't get involved or that the soldier doesn't get involved, you know, the soldiers were the swing vote in the Civil War. Mm. You know, if, if, the, if the Union soldiers hadn't gone home and voted, Uh, Abraham Lincoln does not win reelection in 1864. So the, you know, the future of the country can pivot on the decision uh, of people to decide, you know, not to be passive and to get get involved.
0: Yeah, no, that's good, the voting thing. I, yeah, I talked to my kids about that. I made myself, I self-appointed myself when I was enlisted um, as the voting petty officer. Uh, and I, uh, I was that. like, I got people's, what do they need from their states to do it right and uh, stayed on everybody. And I think that same, that same thing I just talked with you about, I, I talked to the platoon about. But uh, another part is that you talk about is when you're deciding what to do and in the military, we call it prioritizing um, in the midst of the chaos, but uh, is this essential? And I find myself yeah. stopping and thinking about that quite often. Like, is it essential that I do this? Uh, and I, it's something I need to work on and get better at doing um, just because I, like we just talked about, I'm constantly running around and people are texting me and asking me for things and more that's happening more and more. Um, and I'm trying to, to do my best to juggle it all. But I need to take a breath at some point and say, is this essential? it's taking time from my family. It's taking time from the deep thinking I need to do about the next book or whatever it might be. But is this essential? Uh, And I love how you frame that as well.
1: Well, I I think about, you probably remember this, how earlier in your career, your life, you're like, if I just had time to write, (laughs) I would be so good. If I just had time. And then you get the time, you become successful at being a writer. And what do you do? You start doing a bunch of other shit that's not writing, right? Because it's there, because it's lucrative, because other people you know are doing it. And then you don't have any time to do the thing that makes you great, right? That that drives the revenue that 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 is creatively fulfilling that you're calling. And so I, I just try to remember that every time I say yes to stuff, I'm saying no to my work, to my wife, and to my kids, mm-hmm. right? Every time, everything you say yes to means you're saying no to something else. And so when I feel guilty about saying no to something, like uh I got invited to the Super Bowl this year, right? By one of the teams in the Super Bowl. I would have loved to go to the Super Bowl, but that meant a weekend that I'm not at home, right? That would mean disrupting my routine. It would have been a cool experience, but also tucking my kids in at night is a good experience. Watching the Super Bowl with my kids is a good experience, right? Being able to get up early on Monday and do the writing that I had to do. That's an important experience. And so, you know, remembering that everything you say yes to is saying no. And conversely, when you're saying no, you're saying yes to the things that are essential that really matter. Oh,
0: man, I love that. And that's why I want to be cognizant of your time, because I know you said yes to this, which means you're not doing something else. Uh, so I'm not going to keep you too much longer, because I sincerely appreciate you you doing this. Oh, man, you're too nice. Um, no, I mean, I, I just, oh, man, I've, I've learned so much from you, and I man, I sincerely appreciate it all. Um, and the other thing that you talk about uh, quite a bit, which is something I've always, I didn't get it from, from this reading, but it's something I've thought about from a very young age, but if you're to leave right now, let that determine what you do. Um, and you know, I thought of it. You know, people think of it in different terms. You hear that growing up. You know, if this was your last day on earth, would you be doing X, Y, or Z type of a thing? Um, but uh, but so I do think about that quite
1: often, and I have for for most of my life. Well, that's that's the Stoic practice of memento mori—that life is very short, right? That none of us know how long we're here. The the, the way that really hit me from the Stoics, Seneca uh, said. You know, don't think of death as something in the future, right? Like, obviously, uh, as a soldier, death is is much more present. But, but he says, don't think of death as something in the future, but think of death as something that's happening now. That the time that passes belongs to death. So he's like, don't think of how long you have to live. Think of how many years you've already died, wow. right? And then it's like, oh, do I? So I'm 34. Do I have 34 years of life to show for that? Or is it more like, I don't know, 25, and I wasted 10 years, right, on various things? And so, again, this helps us, I think, also what we say yes and what we say no to. If if life is short, it should put the things that we should do in perspective, and it should also put the things that we don't need to do in pretty stark relief as well.
0: Wow, and that's another way of uh, something else you talk about is that don't sweat the small stuff. Although you use uh, the uh, language that yes. uh, that is a little more eloquent than than that, but it's very similar. Uh, it, sure, and, uh, it's something I need to, to think. Of. I think we should all. Think about it as well, and and once again, this these these modern influences and these devices uh, make it so much easier to sweat those small things because they're it almost designed. All small stuff. Yes.
1: Everything on here is small stuff. Yeah, but it seems
0: so big. Uh, it's and, and I fall victim to it just like uh, like most. And what well, <laughs> makes a sound, you know, and
1: an alert pops <laughs> uh, up. Oh, I don't <laughs> have the alert set. I've never
0: done that. Probably because I just don't know how to do it. But I, I need to stay away from from that. Um, but yeah, that, so you talk about that, which I think is so so useful, and then. Also, when you say this, and this might be in twenty twenty two one of the most important things that uh, that that I've taken away from you. Um, and it's you don't have to always have an opinion. Sure. And I like that. That was so freeing to hear you say that, yeah, of
1: course, I don't know what's happening, you know? Like uh, like, also, right, some issues are important. some issues are not. So, I'm going to focus on the opinions that really matter. Like doesn't what happening in Ukraine right now? make a lot of our arguments about masks or uh, pronouns or transgender bathrooms, doesn't it make them seem a lot less important? And I'm not saying that, 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 mm-hmm. that, 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 that the people who are fighting for, for transgender bathrooms or for masks or whatever are, are, are doing the wrong thing. I'm just saying when something really tragic and enormous happens, like a pandemic, it should remind us how often we get caught up in trivial bullshit And we have super angry opinions about them. We're fighting as if we're being persecuted or we're, you know, people were mad about their flight being delayed. And again, as a speaker, you can see I'm bringing this (laughs) up a lot because I travel, but you know, you're mad about your flight being delayed. Meanwhile, these people are fighting in the streets of their country because there is an invading nuclear power, you know, with tanks on, on their road. Right. And it it puts it in perspective. And uh, just, just to remember, Hey, I'm gonna focus on the things that are important to me that matter, that, that are in accordance with my values, with my obligations as a citizen. And if everyone else wants to get angry about this or that, so be it, but I don't have to be tied up in that. I don't have to get sucked into that. Yep, I need to write some of these things down, and I'm gonna put them on the,
0: the walls here, just so that I have that visual every day, um, because I I definitely definitely need it. Um, and uh, yeah, before yeah before we go, I want to ask you about your latest book, Courage Is Calling. Yes. But um, yeah, uh, there's another thing that's on your website that I loved as well, and it's a quote here, and it says, "If you only read the books that everyone else is reading, you can
1: only think." what everyone else is thinking. And I love that. I do too. That's uh, Haruki Murakami, one of the great novelists of, of our time. Uh, you got to read the things, I, like a lot of my favorite books are books people have never heard of or books that are out of print. You know, I don't read a lot of new books, right? I want to read like the classics that I've never read uh, or that, that, you know, I want to read the people who influence the classics or the underground, you know, one of my favorite novelists is John Fonte. I don't know if you've ever read any of his no. stuff, but uh, uh, he wrote this book, Ask the Dust. It's one of my favorite novels. But uh, I, I like to read, I like to, I, when people are like, here's a book you've never heard of that'll like tear your face off. I'm like, that's what I want to read, right? I don't want to go, what's on the New York Times list this week and then pick up those mm-hmm. books. I, I want to I get my own perspective on things. Yep, no, exactly.
0: Um, and I love that you have reading lists. I have reading lists. I've been doing it for like, two and a half years now. I just, every month I have a few different selections yeah. for people. I choose six books that influence me. And I, I put those up there. Uh, yours is more organized and I, I like that. So I'm going to, I'm redoing my website soon. So I'm going to, I'm thinking about how best to to do that, um, with the books, but you have one on there. You have the Robert Caro book, the, uh, the power broker on there.
1: And yeah. Power brokers up there. And the Lyndon Johnson books are somewhere.
0: Yeah. I mean, he's one of the greatest to ever do yep. it. I mean, and working. Insane. He wrote that more more recently, but Power Broker. Yes. Um, I saw that on your one of your reading lists and was like, oh yeah.
1: So good. Have you read his Lyndon Johnson series? No, but I
0: saw that you had mentioned it or referenced it or that. something there. So uh just working and Power Broker and one other one that I can't think of right now. But um yeah, i love love you have those reading lists and everybody should be going to your website and clicking on that and getting the the email every day. Uh it's a great ah, reminder of uh of you know things to think about or take a breath and uh, think about as you organize and move in to your day. I love that. And then people that are asking you what to read, I get that question all the time, which is why I started doing the reading list, but you have such oh, a wealth of novel knowledge there with, uh, with with great descriptions of all these different books, why you recommend them, how they influenced you. I think it's absolutely fantastic. But um, your latest book, Courage is Calling, that um, came out a few months back. Um, uh, what, what's, uh, what's that one have in store?
1: So I'm doing am doing a four book series uh, on the cardinal virtues, courage, temperance, justice, and wisdom. So the first one's the is about courage, uh, a critical virtue to the, to the Stoics. Again, the, the, you know, the Stoics were military leaders and they were artists and they were political activists. You know, Thomas Jefferson dies with a copy of Seneca on his nightstand. So the Stoics were people who were in the arena, so to speak, right? And, uh, and that's why courage is such a critical virtue to them. And so I'm, I'm in the midst of, this is my first time ever doing books that are related to mm-hmm. each other. So I'm about to finish the second one, which will come out in the fall. Uh, but, but courage is the first one. And, and uh, I don't know about you, again, watching what you what's happening in, U, in Ukraine, you see that just how contagious courage can yep. be and how one person, one person can make a difference. Any other elected leader in Zelensky's place We'd be watching a totally different story. And so, you know, realizing that human beings can change history. And in fact, that's who's changed history throughout history. It's singular men and women who stood up and, you know, answered the call when it came. Yep. And I think there's something that resonates. That's why the, the movies like Rocky that have the underdog
0: in them resonate. And now we're, we're seeing that because somewhere in our DNA, I mean, as Americans, for sure, uh, we have that in us uh, fighting yes. against that superpower. Uh, you know, in oh, 1776, it was a different one, but it's still, we we, we connect to those uh, people over there that are throwing off uh, this larger army that's invading. Uh, so I think we all are, sure. are, are, are feeling a little bit of that that patriotism because we're watching that in real time now. But uh, man, thank you so much for doing this. I want to, I, Dude, you're the there's best. so many things I want to ask you, but you know, maybe we'll save it, save the rest of them for the, for another time when your next book comes out. Um, and I sincerely appreciate you saying yes to this because I know it means that, that you had to say no to some other things. So that means, uh, means a ton to me and I sincerely appreciate it.
1: No, dude, you're the best. It was awesome. And look, I, I actually do, I'm going to run, but I'm going to send you an email and i let's do, we'll do another hour. I'll have you on my podcast. Awesome.
0: Sounds amazing. You're Sounds amazing. Take right. care. Thanks Talk for everything. Soon. Just wanted to say a quick thank you to Navy Federal Credit Union for taking such good care of me and my family over the years. I've been a member since 1996, right there. There's my Navy Federal Credit Union cue card right there. So yeah, been a member for quite some time now. They've done a fantastic job with me and my family. And I know that investing and saving can be stressful and Navy Federal Credit Union takes that stress away. A lot of educational materials and they can help you get on track in 2022 when it comes to saving and investing. So go to navyfederal.org backslash save and invest. Trust me, you won't regret it. Thank you so much to Sig Sauer for jumping right on board out of the gate to make this podcast possible. Obviously, I am a huge Sig fan, having carried the P two two six on every deployment downrange in the SEAL teams. Uh, But Sig was a supporter; they were friends well before I was a New York Times best selling author, well before I even had an Instagram account or any social media presence whatsoever. So, thank you guys all so much. Uh, Ron, Tom, Jason, everybody at SIG who gets up every day and continues to crush it and lead the way. SIG is always adapting. They're always at the forefront, whether it is firearms for citizens, whether it's firearms for our military, ammo, suppressors, optics, training, fire control units. They are doing it all and they're always pushing pushing that envelope and trying to do it better each and every day through innovation and adaptation, they crush. So thank you so much for that friendship and support. Uh, It will never be forgotten. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. So what do I have here today? So these are some new Solomon boots and these ones here, they are called the Quest Element GTX. So you can tell these ones are a little more set up for winter so i guess that's why they're called the element so these are the old ones these are you can tell i love these ones um right here so these are the quests you can tell i've been wearing these for a while absolutely love these boots yeah there we are they're there on the light um so absolutely love these solomon boots uh they make it into my novels and uh keep an eye out for what chris pratt is wearing in the amazon series adaptation of the terminal list. He wears a few different uh, pairs of boots in there. But if you look close, you'll be able to see some Solomons, I think. So I've heard. Um, but look at this right here. These ones are pretty sweet because it's snowing outside. I'm going to be rocking these ones right here. See that? A little bit different, a little more weather-proof, water-resistant right there. So these look awesome. Solomon, thank you guys so much for sending these. Eric Anderson, appreciate all you do. Thank you so much. Uh, what else do I have here? Look at this thing. Boom, look at that blade right there. So this is from Combative Edge. You can follow them on the social channels, Combative Edge, and uh, check that out right there. You can see that in the light. I would not want to get stuck with this thing. don't want to get stuck with anything, but uh, look at that, that is pretty sweet. So thank you so much for sending. Sincerely appreciate that. You know how I feel about blades. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. Find out more about Ryan Holiday at ryanholiday.net. Follow him on the social channels at The Daily Stoic and sign up for his newsletter. It's a great way to start the day. My next novel, In the Blood, is coming out on May 17th and is available now for pre-order in all formats. Thanks so much for tuning in. Sincerely appreciated. Take care out there. Be safe. Stay strong. Keep fighting.
1: get your podcasts.